I think we have to be very careful about how we develop and how we interact with and how we regulate AI for exactly this reason. Um, there's this ongoing debate in my field and in philosophy about whether AI will become conscious, you know, whether it will be not only smart, but also start to feel something as well. Now, currently, GPT-4 might say, you know, I feel sad or something like that. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. We are kicking off 2024. Does it make any sense talking about time, timelines and months and figures and resolutions? Fuck it. Anyway, as I told you at the end of the year, last year, taking a break, and I did take a break, strangely fell ill during the break. Hey, when I was doing stuff, I wasn't falling ill. What does that go to show? But I had a good month off and I'm so excited to be back for you on this podcast and again i appreciate all of you who've been a part of the journey for the past two years and before that on the baby bed podcast if you forgot i was doing that on my own single-handedly putting up stuff talking about my opinions talking about life but i'm excited uh for the conversations coming up on this podcast for you to listen to it there's so much going on there's so much happened in the past month right just, again the noise is amplified israel palestine universities donald trump ah, oh, the friends that we thought we are not going to hear back from. They're coming back. Anyhow, what I'm going to do going forward is that I'm just going to bring the guest up because they have so much to say and I don't want to take away from it. I will, however, share my opinions, my thoughts, my rants, my, my ponderings on other episodes which I will put up individually away from the conversation so you can separately focus on these things that I am doing. As always, uh, yes, if you do like what you listen to, do share it with a friend. If you're watching this on YouTube, do subscribe to the channel. It does help to like the video, man, and do share it with like-minded people or unlike-minded people. If you're listening to this, of course, please do rate it if the platform that you're listening to it on does provide the opportunity to rate the podcast because it does help. And help is what I need. As the Beatles said, help. I don't know the rest of the lyrics, but you get the hint. Let me talk about today's guest. We're talking about consciousness. We're talking about the state of being. What does it mean to be human? What is the experience? What are we feeling? What are we understanding? What are we going through in this life we call with the body and the mind and the brain and everything that it embodies? What is it understand? And consciousness is such a big thing. What does it mean to be a conscious person, a conscious being, a conscious entity? A being that's aware. So what is that? Is that the same feeling? Awareness, consciousness, intelligence. And to talk about that, I've got Anil Seth, who is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex. He's a proponent of materialist experiences of consciousness. And today he's to join me to talk about everything I said previously. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Anil Seth. I hope you enjoyed as much as I do and did and do. Who knows? It's the past, the present and the future. All right. Anil, say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure having you here today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Lovely. So consciousness now. Okay. Firstly, when I, when I read just the brief line of the professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex. I think that first statement must have made a lot of Indian aunties go weak in the knees, you know, just such a, a glorified <laughs> title. I love it. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's quite a lot uh, that, you know, goes into that title alone. But let me just initially ask you, because there is a huge emphasis today 
uh, when we look at the brain and we look at the human potential, um, there's this attachment to achievement, intelligence, and consciousness uh, is also in very interloosely, loosely interwoven uh, into these concepts. So maybe to start with, could you explain to me and uh, people listening, is what's the fundamental difference between intelligence and consciousness? I think it's a really deep difference and it's a difference it's a good place to start actually because especially with the rise of artificial intelligence which i'm sure we'll probably get onto later these questions are very much in the air um we like to think as human beings that we are species smart we think you know we think in general that we're intelligent mm -hmm. and intelligence you'll find any number of definitions but very broadly intelligence is about doing the right thing at the right time whether it's playing chess well or being able to make your dinner or just being able to move around your house without bumping into things. Mm -hmm. um, these are all aspects of, of intelligence. And consciousness, on the other hand, is about experience. It's about raw feeling. It's what makes us, I think, more than just complex objects capable of doing complicated things. Now, being intelligent gives us different ways of being conscious. Like I can have different kinds of conscious experiences when I think about particular things or, or project my, uh, myself into the future in, in various ways. But fundamentally, I think, I think they're pretty different. So basic conscious experiences like, for instance, the feeling of joy or the feeling of pain um, – don't seem to require all that much intelligence at all and probably shared by many other species besides human beings. So I think we make a mistake sometimes when we couple these two things closely together. Mm. I actually think there's a, what you said at the beginning there, sometimes this association is made because people have different definitions of consciousness as well. Mm. There's this kind of higher level view of consciousness, like being aware of what's going on in our world, being aware of what's going on in politics, being aware of what's going on with the climate, with our environment. That's sometimes wrapped into this idea of, of consciousness. Uh, but that's, that's, and that may well require like, being smart in particular ways, but that's a very different understanding of the term consciousness. As neuroscientists use it, and most philosophers, it's the raw fact of being the subject of, of experience. Okay, because we have this tendency as human beings to kind of glorify certain concepts that make us look good, right? Uh, we say we're the most intelligent species. As a result, we have this domination over other species on this planet. Um, so could we say that intelligence is something we can attribute specifically to human beings, but consciousness is something that transcends all species? I think we can probably attribute consciousness and intelligence more broadly than just human beings, okay. but in different ways and to different things. So there are different ways of being conscious. Human consciousness is just one small region in the vast space of possible minds, possible ways of being conscious. Mm. A bat was going to have different conscious experiences to a human. Bats have echolocation. What's it like to be a bat? There's a famous philosophy paper with exactly that title <laughs> and making the case that only a bat can know that. But there would be something it is like to be a bat. It's going to experience the world in its own unique way. And maybe not everything that is alive is conscious. I mean, it's very hard for me to, to be confident about 
whether an ant has any kind of conscious experience. Now, I think consciousness, like everything else in biology, evolved. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's useful for us in particular ways. So it just may not be there for very simple creatures. Um, and intelligence, on the other hand, that also expresses itself in different ways and in different species. We humans, you're right, we have this kind of human exceptionalist tendency. We tend to put ourselves at the top of every pyramid, at the center of the universe. There's this historical, certainly in, in the West, this really historical um, temptation to try and make ourselves distinct from the rest of the natural world, closer to God than to the rest of you know, the animal kingdom. And so we have tended to, to emphasize a particular kind of intelligence, the sort of rational thinking um, that is can be separated out from our you know, messy biological realities. But then other animals are intelligent in very different ways. You know, bees that are able to forage for food and communicate the location of honey you know, creatures like bees are intelligent mm. in very different ways. You know, they can navigate to honey in their environment, find out where it is, find their way back, communicate the location through dancing to other members, other bees in the hive. And even machines can be intelligent in particular ways. That's a really big open question about whether computers can have the same kind of general flexible intelligence that we human beings seem to have. But they're clearly smart in, in narrow ways already. I mean, they can already beat humans at chess. They can develop new drugs. They can solve mathematical problems. They can do all kinds of things. So, yeah, both intelligence and, and consciousness go way beyond the human. But I think they go in, in somewhat different directions. Yeah, because, you know, if I try to understand it from the hemispheres of the brain again this comes from my limited knowledge of reading on the topic is we kind of have these vaguely four hemispheres right and when you say right brain way of thinking left brain way of thinking some mm -hmm. is more logical some is more rational some is more emotional and when you mention feelings the raw feeling of existence or the raw feeling um that courses through our um senses as we experience the world around us um from the brain, it's purely a chemical release that results in these feelings. Um, so would, you know, when we talk about the mind and we talk about the mind being a construct from um, certain experiences the brain has witnessed in this, in the body, right? Whether it's the body of a human being or a dog. So how, where does this come from? Because is this consciousness now, when I look at it, is it my consciousness that is limited to the realm of my body, which I perceive through my sight and my uh, hearing and my sense of touch and smell? Or is it a consciousness that is passed on from, say, my mother to me and from her mother to her? And is it specific to a family? Is it specific to a certain group? Uh, is it a shared consciousness? Is it a set of experiences that is passed on or inherited or is conditioned? by people around you? I mean, there's a lot of open questions there, and I don't <laughs> think there are, there are good answers to, to many of them, but let, let's try. Mm -hmm. So the first thing to say is when, when we talk about feeling, what I just want to say what I mean by the word, which is not necessarily what, what everybody means, but I mean not just emotional feelings, like the feeling of, of joy or of, of anguish or something like that, mm -hmm. but even 
visual experiences. It feels like something to have a visual experience. When you open your eyes in the morning and you, you look around you, it feels like something to experience the blue sky or, or the, the boring wallpaper, depending on what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And there's a feeling of a certain kind to every conscious experience we have. That, for me, is the essence of consciousness, that it's not just a complicated object whirring away in, in subjective ob- oblivion. You know, there is experience happening. And the next thing that you said is that it's, it's, isn't this just chemicals doing their thing in the brain? Well, that's the big question. I mean, that's the question that as, as a neuroscientist, we're trying to understand. And how is it possible that this incredibly complicated biological machine, the brain, mm. how could it generate or be identical to or just even how is it related to conscious experiences? Because a conscious experience... Let's say like the feeling of looking at um, a blue sky. I mean, that experience just doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that an object could have or generate. I mean, this is the big dilemma that goes way back in philosophy, both in Eastern philosophy and in Western philosophy. Mm-hmm. This relationship between the mind, the, the mental world, the world of experience, and the physical world, the world of, of matter. Of course, Western philosophy puts it in a particular way, puts it particularly sharply. Descartes did this, probably did the most damage this way. But there still is a question here. How how should we think of the relationship between any kind of conscious experience and any kind of stuff, whether that stuff is a brain um, or something else? Now, we know that there's an intimate relationship between the brain and consciousness. And we know this for many, many reasons. I mean, this is really the starting point. This is why I chose to be a neuroscientist to address this problem. Right. You have general anesthesia. Consciousness goes away entirely. Yeah. It's a fantastic invention. Glad that it does. And it comes back even more importantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you have brain damage of a certain kind, then your conscious experience changes in a particular way. If you intervene in the brain, you change consciousness. So we know there's this very, very intimate relationship. And that nature of that relationship may well be shaped by society, may well be shaped by family. If we just take as a starting point that the way experience happens for an individual, the experience of the world, but also how they experience being themselves, if we take as a starting point that that depends on the brain in a very, very intimate, tightly coupled way, then anything that affects the brain is likely to affect our conscious experience too. And Mm. of course, that can include the genes that we inherit from our parents. That can include the influences that that we undergo when we're growing up in development. That can also include um, the assumptions that society builds into how we perceive things. Uh, But that's, that's still all compatible with the idea that your consciousness is in the here and now, it's yours, and it's dependent only on what's going on in your brain. I think that's the key premise of the neuroscientific approach. It might be wrong. You know, it might be that consciousness is, is sort of this uh, fundamental property of the universe and we're tapping into it somehow. Um, nobody really knows. But the, the view that, at least in practice, that I work with is that 
Now, what you're conscious of is just dependent on what's happening in your brain right now, but what's happening in your brain right now then itself depends on many things besides your brain and your own body. It depends on society, history, culture, many things. In some way, that's extremely empowering, right? That you are the um, hero or the, 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 the conductor of your consciousness through your senses but um you know but hold on a minute i, yeah. I want to i would just want i i try and resist this a bit as well because this idea that there's an essence of you that is conducting your experiences and maybe then choosing what to do exercising free will of some sorts do, mm. that i think gets us into tr trouble because okay. it gets us back to this idea that you are separate from your experiences you are separate from what your brain is doing and so then you have the question, but what is this you? What is this consistent? Yeah. Um, how does it relate to the brain? This was, the, this was always the problem that Rene Descartes got into in, in the 1780s and century and philosophers ever since. But a different way to think about it, and I think a way that's actually really compatible with more Eastern ways of thinking, and Indian philosophy, Buddhist philosophy as well, is that the self is not this little mini-me that's orchestrating things. It's part of experience too. It's always changing. The brain generates the experience of being you through the same principles that it generates the experience of looking at a blue sky. I, st I still think this is very empowering, but in, in different ways, in different ways, because it releases us from some of the obligations that we might feel ourselves to be under if we feel that we should control everything, like a little pilot inside our skulls. Um, but it also gives us the, I think, the recognition that our conscious experiences, our ways of being in the world can change and we can cultivate new ways of experiencing the self and the world. And that can be a, a very empowering recognition indeed. Because in psychology, um, I read there are a couple of concepts, right? The working self and the true self. And the working self uh, is something that is shaped by perception and uh, life experiences and how we go about what we do and things we do and things we say. But the true self is beyond that and it's something that just observes. Uh, again, these concepts may be, I mean, I may be misnaming them, I might be um, not doing justice to its definition. But I think in a piece you'd written, which I read last year, um, you spoke about how when, say, you watch a sunset and say, I watch a sunset and add on the layer of the fact that I'm visually impaired, we both have very different experiences. So mm -hmm. uh, how, would, how, would, how does that pan out? Is it, uh, again, um, the, the brain using the sense of smell, sight, uh, sound, and um, touch, and whatnot, will go to a beach, and when I think of a beach, now I don't know if we're getting into semantics, but when I imagine a beach or I experience a beach, it may be extremely different for you. So now, is that... Um, going into the space of memories is that my consciousness using this vessel of my body being all of it, the brain the eyes, the nose, all the organs, making sense of an environment that it has created an imprint of? I think it, it it's probably simpler than that. I mean, I think the simplest way to understand it is that we all, just as we all have 
different bodies you know different with different heights different skin colors different body shapes and so on we all have different brains too mm-hmm. but those differences aren't immediately visible you know i can we can see from the outside how we differ externally even if those differences aren't very big you know, we can just see them but when it comes to differences between our brains and how those differences manifest in different experiences. Like we, we go to the beach together, we both have a look, and we're going to be having different experiences. Now, some of these might be related to memory. You know, I might have been to this beach before and have some memories about it, and so that will trigger some emotions and so on, and, and you might not. And so, of course, you're going to have a different experience. That, and that aspect will be traceable to things like memory. Um, maybe, you know, maybe I could go surfing and so I've got some sort of embodied memory of it as well and, and maybe you don't. So there are certain things like that. But I think even more basically, we just look at the waves and uh, we have a different visual experience. And this may be because, maybe because we've got different um, visual abilities. I mean, uh, you said you're, you're visually impaired. Maybe you'll tell me in what, in what way. But, but even if we were both completely normally sighted, our brains... The visual parts of our brains might be different too. And we'll have a different visual experience. The challenge is we won't know that because only I have my conscious experience. And it seems as though I just see the world as it really is. You know, it just seems as though, okay, I see the waves to be that color because they are that color. Mm. That's how experience presents a world to us. It doesn't present it as being this kind of conspiracy between our brains and the world. It just seems to us that we transparently register things as they really are. But the novelist Anais Nin put it very beautifully when she said, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. And we are all, all different. So really, it's, it's back to this basic principle from which neuroscience starts, that all of our experiences depend on the brain and only on the state of the brain. And if our brains are in different states or we have different brains, then even for the same shared objective reality, we will have different experiences. And I think recognizing that again is is quite empowering because it can cultivate a bit of humility about the way we see. You know, it's we use it very metaphorically sometimes that it's quite hard to see things from another person's perspective. And if we really understand that this is true, literally, that two people can have a different experience for the same thing, then I think it helps us at least allow space for the idea that other people not only see things differently, but might feel things differently and even believe things differently. And you know, this is a bit idealistic, but I, I like to think that this idea has some potential. You know, when you cash it out with experiments and evidence and through people's lived experience, that this has some potential to diffuse some of these echo chamber dynamics that, <laughs> that are really problematic now where, where we just always want evidence to confirm our pre-existing beliefs and we just yeah. believe that they're right and how could anybody ever think differently. And everyone thinks their version of the truth is the only truth out there, right? Right, but you remember the, do you remember that photo of the dress from about 10 years ago? There was this there was this image, a photograph of a dress that half the world saw as blue and black and half the world saw as white and gold. Mm. And I thought this was fantastic because it really just surfaced this phenomenon that those people who saw it one way, they were so 
convinced that they could not accept that somebody else would see it so differently. And I think that, that in, a, in a little microcosm, that's exactly the phenomenon that is so problematic today, where people are so convinced they're right, that they're unable to listen to a different perspective. And I want to talk about that with relation to artificial intelligence, and we talk about deep fakes and how AI is generating so many um, things which are, again, controversial. People are going into camps based on what they believe is true, and it's affecting society, politics, economies as well. Uh, I want to come back to that. But before that, uh, if, if you don't mind, I want to just uh, give you, you asked me about the vision part, right? Uh, the reason I mentioned the visual impairment is because when I went up uh, a few weeks back and I was thinking of the idea of a swimming pool because there was a pool next to me and it wasn't, I could physically see the water, but it was this memory I had when I when I lost my central vision when I was eight and the peripheral has dropped. It's got Stargardt's disease. I'm sure you've heard of it, like macular mm -hmm. degeneration. So the peripheral has dropped over the past 33 years and now it's probably 3% of what it was. So I, every time I go, it's relying on some combination of old memory. So that's why I found that fascinating because I don't see sunsets anymore or I might see a glow, I might see a haze. I, I don't see the ocean. I might see it close up just the froth of the foam on the water. Um, I don't see what a pool deck looks like. I'm just giving you examples of uh, things which are in reality now, but there is a creation that exists already in my head, which I'm referring to. Yes. Which is very interesting. Yeah. It, it is. And I think, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful description of how the world seems to you. So when you, when you, you, know, you, when you look, when you buy a pool and you have your eyes open, you still have a, a kind of visual experience, right? Is that, is that true to say? I think it's not so visual anymore. That's the strange part because I um, try to make it visual because it's kind of this thing holding on to a little bit of what sight you have left. But right. more and more, if I start saying, okay, you know what, let's not rely on that, but close your eyes maybe, or just take a deep breath and smell the water, maybe the chlorine in the water, or maybe the, the, the lapping of the water by the, the walls of the pool, it's in somehow reinforcing different, not reinforcing, sorry, but creating a new representation in my mind or in my mm -hmm. experience. So it's not really a sight of the pool, but it's new experience of what it means to be by a water body right that makes a lot of sense and i think it, it highlights again that and i'm guilty of this too i mean I, i've used most of my examples have been about vision mm -hmm. when when i've been trying to talk about the nature of ex conscious experience mm -hmm. and this is a bit of a prejudice that we have in in neuroscience and philosophy certainly talk about vision a lot but of course other senses that exist as as you uh much more aware of than than me but we all have them mm. and any kind of experience and when i go to the beach and i look at it too it's not just a visual experience you know i am smelling it I, there's a the the tactile element of sand beneath my feet there's the temperature that i feel the sense of a breeze against my skin all of these things contribute to the experience of being standing on a beach and they interact with each other too so the senses that we have don't operate in, in isolation. Sight is affected by sound, is affected by touch in, in ways that and we still don't fully understand. I have people in my group you know, working on this about exactly how the brain puts different senses together. 
And in your case, there's a lot of compensation going on, right? As your vision has become less reliable, other senses step up and perhaps become more vivid in your conscious experience. As you said, you might smell the chlorine by the pool. In my case, if I go there, my brain might sense this chlorine, but it may not be something I'm aware of. You know, I may not be able to, to name that. So I do think that's fascinating. I think the other thing it brings up is that perception. You know, when we experience the world around us, it is not a process of just reading out the information that comes into the senses. Even though it might seem like that, it might seem like that when our experience is just the, this way in which information enters our brains and, and the brain reads it out, like, what's there? Yeah. But one of the lessons from neuroscience and a central theme in my own work over the years has been that any kind of experience is as much, if not more, an active generative process, not a passive registration. The brain, in my view, anyway, this is still a theory. It's not, you know, it's certainly not, it might, it's probably wrong in some ways, but the brain is continuously making predictions about what's mm -hmm. out there in the world and the sensory data, whether it's visual or olfactory, smell or, or whatever it might be, is primarily there to calibrate the brain's predictions to keep them tied to the world. And what we experience, the core claim I have, what we experience are the predictions themselves. So another way to think about it is your brain, yeah, you do have a kind of model of what a swimming pool is like. You know, the brain has its own idea of what a swimming pool is like. And that depends on your past experiences, you know, when, when you had more vision, so you have these visual memories. And it depends on what happens when you buy a swimming pool now. And it depends on, you know, what what society thinks a swimming pool is too. I mean, all of these factors will shape this, this model that the brain has and that will underlie the experience that you have of it. Mm -hmm. So I think this sort of makes all the connections. Memory is part of it, but only part of it. Now, everything, lots of other things contribute to the brain's predictions about things. And that, for me, that's what we actually experience. Yeah, I find it fascinating, you know, because I never acknowledge the importance of the other senses. And I think it's a society we live in where the emphasis is on the visual input. And I was, it's strange, like, does the brain have a preference saying, okay, I'll first resort to my sight and use that data. And then if that's compromised, then go to the he the hearing part, then the smell. Because, you know, and especially now we're bombarded with a visual overload, right? With every yeah. uh, platform, with every device, it's kind of like um, first, first see and then after a little bit of a delay, listen or hear or sense, right? And now with the um, advancements in VR and AR, it'll be interesting to see what um, happens to our perception and our sense of reality. Uh, but just to um, add another point into this conversation is uh, when I was talking to someone recently about the Vedanta approach to consciousness, and this again is in its most simplified form, it, it, it looks at how we are a part of a collective consciousness and if you want to give the analogy of the ocean, consciousness is the ocean and all of us are little waves that are representations and extensions of that consciousness and the consciousness, be it the fish in the water, be it the tree on the ground, or be it you or me, are experiencing this um, moment or the, the world around us or the planet or whatever it may be. Uh, and it's all going back into the shared collective consciousness, which is continuous and impermanent in some way and transcends this planet and goes beyond all of it. 
Um, and if we add that element into what we're talking about, um, does it uh, go along the lines of what you are studying and what you're, um, you're a proponent of, or is it against that in some way? I think it's rather independent of it. Mm -hmm. you know, typically, there's a distinction that's quite useful between the metaphysics of consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. which is a complicated philosophical term, but it's about what we think consciousness really is and its its relationship to the rest of the universe. And is it something that, as you were saying, in this perspective from Vedanta, that is in, that is always there, perhaps ever present, that transcends the body, perhaps transcends the planet, um, or is it a phenomenon that is just a biological phenomenon, a little bit like digestion, yeah. you know, that evolution has hit upon for human beings, uh, but that isn't everywhere and wasn't always. And I, you know, I find this quite a, a weird perspective that you know, it could have been for the vast majority of the existence of the universe, there was just no consciousness at all. Mm. There were things happening, but none of it was experienced. Yeah. It was just a subjectively empty universe. I mean, this is really hard to get one's head around. So there's actually a temptation to find a way to think different things, <laughs> to, think, to avoid trying to get your head around that kind of bleak prospect. Um, it could be that conscious experiences arose only once and only here. Now, is this a scary prospect? In, in a way it is, but I think actually it, it, it can be interpreted as, as making us realize what we've got and take care of ourselves and our planet a little bit better. Just this idea that consciousness can't be taken for granted. Yeah. But back to your point, I think it's nothing that we can do in neuroscience is going to prove or disprove these perspectives about the ultimate nature of consciousness. Um, there's another view which is quite similar called panpsychism, that consciousness is everywhere and is as fundamental as mass or energy or electrical charge or something like that. Right. Now, science, as it is now, can't really distinguish these different alternatives. Um, what, for me, what I, the way I tend to think about this is, what is the perspective that leads me to... What's the most productive perspective that's most likely to change my understanding of the phenomenon? And if I think of consciousness as something that's intimately tied to the brain, then I'll do different things. I'll do different kinds of experiments. I'll think about different kinds of theories that in practice have already changed you know, our understanding of consciousness. Neuroscience from this perspective already has. But that doesn't mean that it's ultimately the right thing. And if some of the insights from Vedanta, from Buddhism as, as well, about, for instance, the nature of the self and impermanence mm -hmm. are really important clues. But I think rather than being clues about the ultimate nature of reality, they're, they're warnings about some of the assumptions that we have that might constrain our thinking in, in ways that we don't even realize. Like this idea that the self is this little mini-me inside my head that's doing yeah. all the rational thinking. <laughs> now, that's an assumption that's, that's challenged effectively in Eastern philosophy yeah. in ways that are now really very, very compatible with, with modern neuroscience. So I think there's, there's, there's just an interesting synergy, but they don't, they don't 
they don't clash head on in any particular way. I think the, the key is to try and find the the synergies. Of course, when some you know, religious texts or spiritual texts make specific, very specific claims, like for instance, that if a, if a self might, if a conscious self might survive the death of the body and then you know, persist and be reborn in a different body, it's very hard to reconcile that with what we know from from neuroscience and modern science. But if you, you know, if you weaken that claim and just say something, you know, there's something that, that persists, something that goes on, well, you know, maybe there's space for that still. Mm. Now, I'd like to hope that both can be, um, you know, the, the, uh, along the journey of discovery in, in science proof that it is a means to the same end, which is understanding how we experience consciousness, right? Because if, if, if you, um, you know, take away, the, if, if you believe in the idea of non-duality, um, will that make for a more hopeful future where we're not trying to identify each other as different intelligent beings or groups of different intelligent beings who have different uh, and different interpretations of the experience in the world and what is right and what is wrong and which is a better way or not a better way. It seems with now the the environment we have with, with uh, as, as you pointed out earlier, where there are a lot of opportunities to be in echo chambers for whatever reason and in whatever group and idea that attracts you. Oh, do, do we, um, you know, and, and there's something I wanted to go back to, which is the idea of intelligence um, and now the artificial form of that intelligence. Uh, do we have any proof that the more heightened levels of intelligence impairs your consciousness or the other way around, a, a being that is less intelligent has a more um, uninhibited um, experience that enhances consciousness? This is a very good question. I think um, that there's a case you might make that creatures that have less cognitive sophistication, you know, less, mm -hmm. less intelligence than us, um, may live more in the present. Mm. And so may have a more vivid way of consciously being in the world mm. and we, we all we all notice intuitively you know if we daydream or we get distracted or we spend our our day worrying about the future or ruminating about the past we're just less present in our worlds consciously we're less aware of what's going on around us and of course you know, that the practice of meditation is is quite useful in trying to help us address this problem be in the world pay attention to our immediate sensations a little bit more closely, so yeah, I think I think you can make that case that that intelligence can sometimes take us outside of our immediate present, but it it gives us different ways of being conscious too. You know, I can yeah. I can imagine the future in ways that creatures without the ability to mentally time travel cannot. Mm -hmm. I can think about the past and use those memories to decide to do different things in the future it can be more flexible that way so you gain something you give something up in this relationship between intelligence and, and consciousness but also just one of the other things you said it's made me think about you know are there views that give us more hope for the for the future i think this is this is super interesting and it's kind of a question that goes even another level deeper another level higher than what we've been talking about Mm -hmm. Are there morally or ethically better ways to think about consciousness than others? 
Right. And, you know, I suppose as a scientist, my assumption is that trying to get closer to the way things actually are um, will be the most hopeful, will be the most useful and beneficial for society. But that in itself is, is an assumption that, you know, many philosophers have questions. But is that really true? Is, is it always better to know things more accurately um, for, you know, for our personal fulfillment and for the betterment of society? I think it's true, but I don't think we can necessarily assume that that's, that that's true. What gives me a bit of confidence is, is the way things are beginning to line, line up and converge. As we were saying, these these synergies between ways of thinking that religious and spiritual traditions have cultivated, you know, and of course they've been shaped by many factors. They've been shaped partly because they help us as a society and as individuals. Of course, they've been shaped by other influences too. You know, dynamics of power, dynamics of social hierarchies, and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but some of the essential, perhaps the more persistent lessons turn out to be very very complementary to what neuroscience is is telling us now as well about you know the impermanence of the self the 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 relationship between appearance and, and reality and there's a lovely concept from from vedanta again about maya you know the the illusion. idea that right. well, it's usually said illusion i think in, in my limited understanding of this there was another description i read which really resonated with me which is that you know maya is is that which gives our experience the false impression of being real. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's something I'm really interested in from a neuroscience perspective as well, because I think that's the source of a lot of our confusions. You know, we, we just, the, the nature of experience is that it seems to reveal reality as it is. But that reality as, in itself is a creation, a false creation in some way. Well, the reality of our experience is always indirect. It's not mm. false. Now, evolution has been very, very careful. Well, evolution isn't careful, but but the, the dynamics of evolution have made sure that the way we experience the world is very, very closely related to what's really out there. I mean, that's why we survive and don't Yeah, die. you can't say like, am I seeing a tiger? It's not really a tiger. Next thing you're eaten up. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Unless people the say, tiger that you're seeing, you know, is not the thing that's actually there. You know, what's there? Who knows? Ask a physicist. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the color of the tiger does not exist independently of your brain. Yes, there's something there. Mm. And, and our, our brains make sure that we experience it in a way that helps us survive. So, yeah, yeah there's, this, there's this beautiful indirectness that, um, that the brain mediates between our experience and, and reality. The way we are going forward, I think it'll be like social media just fighting about what is a tiger, you know, and just different groups hashtagging each other. Um, yeah, or they'll say like, there's no tiger, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a fake news, tiger is fake news. Yeah, and that's you offended the problem me. <laughs> there, there is a fact of a matter, you know, you can say you know, there is a tiger or there isn't, and that really matters. So this is why, you know, the dynamics of social media is getting so pernicious when it, when it becomes reality denying yeah you know someone would say with all this noise we are experiencing in the the the, the tumultuous kind of back and forth uh way going on about something as simple as does a tiger exist or not is a tiger real or not is a tiger what is a tiger define a tiger but someone would say i would escape to the caves adopt the practice of meditation various forms of breathing and go into myself and be a part of the larger consciousness which is the idea of impermanence and 
it 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 completely um, you know takes me away from this human experience, but it takes me to a deeper realm of understanding. Right. The other side would be I have this vessel as a human being, which is the brain and all its organs, and it has these. Um, mind-boggling, if you want to call it, or just this amazing potential to, to 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 absorb the environment, to understand, to perceive, to create these experiences, and both are beautiful in them in their own way. Um, but with the things we have today, um, as as a neuroscientist who's in the real world, who's practically um, conducting experiments to understand, is there? Um, I wouldn't say a solution. That would be um, not a fair question, but what is the direction in which a person, because you hear a lot of these uh, people telling people, get, meditate, be mindful. The only way to get away from depression and anxiety or to away from suffering is to escape from it and, and, and understand. And I, and I see the beauty in breathing and meditation, spending time with your thoughts and understanding your, um, you know, where you are at that point and how you face the world before being bombarded by other people's perceptions and ideas and and all those things, but it isn't. Sometimes, if you if you go and you try to meditate, it doesn't work. Your suffering increases. Mm. There, there needs to be some kind of um, sense a person can make, saying, "This is my brain. These are the chemicals." Yes, I can go to a therapist. I can get a psychiatrist to prescribe medicines. There are now psychedelics which are helping people with depression. And I, I don't mean to go down the mental health or mental mental illness, but but clearly there is a relation between um, the way a person who's mentally ill who's got uh, severe anxiety or depression, the way they experience the world and maybe their, the way their consciousness exists and someone who is in a much more mentally fit state. And and, and how how can you, um, through your work, maybe understand that or shed light on it? Um, it's difficult. And I think you're absolutely right that there's a bit of a double-edged blade to everything. There's no panacea. There's no magic bullet, whether it be at neuroscience or meditation or psychedelics. I don't think there's anything that is sort of a universal solution to the challenges that we face in terms of in the quality of our mental lives. Mm -hmm. um, and meditation is particularly interesting here because yes, there's, I mean, there's a whole industry, a huge industry now in meditation, right? In meditative yeah. practice, but it can be very aversive to people as well. You know, you're right that when you can, you can, end up struggling and, and feeling much worse. Also, you might feel a sense of failure that, oh, I haven't been able to meditate properly. I can't even do that. And one piece of advice I remember very strongly is that if for people with depression, it can often be a very bad idea to start meditating while you're very depressed if you haven't already built up a practice of doing it before. So it can be more preventative rather than curative. I think that's that's really important. Um, but what, yeah, what what can be done? Well, the I guess my overall view on how, as a neuroscientist, it's possible to contribute to addressing some of these challenges is precisely that a lot of mental health issues and and psychiatric conditions, if we broaden it out a bit more, well, they're really characterized by differences in conscious experience. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, to some extent, they're characterized by different kinds of behavior. You know, people do different things. But really what matters is is what their experience is like. like. You know, depression is fundamentally a different experience of the self, of emotion and of the nature of the self. Um, 
know, other things might involve hallucinations and so on, which are also changes in, in conscious experience. So if we understand more about what shapes these conscious experiences, you know, the mechanisms that really give rise to them and shape them, you know, I think those give us a set of tools for firstly just for maybe going a bit easy on ourselves, recognizing what's going on, you know, recognizing that there's things that are happening inside our brains and our bodies that are responsible and that we shouldn't take things naively as they seem. Right? A lot of mental health challenges, they, they give us ways of thinking that we just take as being real, you know, like I am useless or there is a, the voice in my head is coming from the CIA or something like that. We reify these experiences. And so you get into a vicious circle. Um, but if we begin to understand like, oh, a, a hallucination might be what happens when the brain's predictions are too strong and overwhelm the sensory data. Just knowing that doesn't make the hallucinations go away, but it might help us, it might help the person change their relationship to the hallucinations. And as a neuroscientist, it gets us one step closer to thinking about how we might diagnose and, and even treat conditions like this when they are um, really distressing. Because an important bracket here is that not all forms of altered experience are, are bad. I mean, we have also this tendency to pathologize, to medicalize differences in in ways of being and i think this is also really dangerous you know is autism something that should be medicalized or is it something that is a you know, part of our rich diversity of minds mm. uh, there's yeah. there's a risk there too but yeah understanding the mechanisms of experience it it gives us a way to relate to them differently and it gives us ways of ultimately coming up with potential medical clinical approaches when they are needed but hopefully only when they are needed and not as a kind of social engineering tool right i think that's essential um i want to talk about a couple more points before i let you go i, uh, I think we have some a few more minutes yeah sure um you know there's this concept and i want to talk to you about it from a personal point of view and yes there may be uh people who are completely sold by this idea and some critics of the idea but um there are these concepts of lucid dreaming and astral travel, right? And the reason I bring it up, of course, I don't, I don't, I don't expect you to defend it or put it down, but just from a personal experience, you know, um, this ties into consciousness again because the idea of sleep: when a human being sleeps, are we conscious? What are we experiencing? Um, our, our senses are switched off. Our brain—I don't know—is it off? Is it on? Is it? But um, I want you to comment on that. Oh. But another thing I want you to talk about, uh, I just. I'll just share this quick experience, is I don't know what to call it. Uh, I don't want to put a term like astral travel or lucid dreaming on these experiences I've had. But I have, I've had these things in my dreams where um, there's this freedom of leaving my body and flying. And I haven't been on any drug. Um, and the, the strange thing, which which for me is quite strange, is there are distinct images when I'm traveling through. And, and a lot of, obviously, as I told you, I, I have no recollection of seeing clearly um, before the age of eight. But these images I see in my dreams are, especially here, because when I say I dream of going out for dinner with my wife or, or, or some, this memory in my life, the image of my wife is not clear or the, the room I'm sitting in is not clear. It's all blurred out. But in these instances, the landscapes, the colors are so vivid, it mm -hmm. startles me. 
and the sense of sound, the sense of speed, the sense of um, of these various things I'm feeling, uh, which I've never experienced in this life, are so real there. It just sometimes, I mean, I ignored it because I'm like, you know, as you said, because some states of mind are are demonized, right? Saying, okay, you might need to get some help, you know. But <clears throat> I, I find it quite fascinating. I don't want to swear by it. I don't want to say I've, I've reached a higher state of consciousness. None of that. I just wanted to share that with you to get your thoughts on it. You know, no, no expert comments, but whatever you want to say about it, I'd appreciate to hear that. No, that's fascinating. Thank you for thank you for sharing it. And yeah, just on that last point, it is really a shame that there can be these stigmas attached to. You know, unusual conscious experiences because you know people are afraid of being called like yeah well you're crazy or you're mad something like that and I think this yeah. is this is problematic you know unusual conscious experiences are really very common mm-hmm. a lot of people hear voices it doesn't mean they have schizophrenia or psychosis yeah yeah um, it's so a broader recognition of this I think will will be really be really helpful I was fascinated what you said about things seeming vivid in your dreams in a way they you know, haven't since the age of eight in real life. And I don't even remember pre-eight. I have no recollection of seeing clearly. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you see clearly in these dreams sometimes, or it seems yeah. to you that you see clearly. Strangely, no specifics like people's faces, but uh, city streets, buildings, um, no. like, uh, you know, view view down of cities, like the bird's eye view of various landscapes of rolling hills of of the color of the sky and i mean I'm, mm. i've flown on a plane multiple times but i can't see the clouds outside you know I, I, I can't see the the ground from the plane window so i'm like where are these coming from because they're very distinct um yeah and, and the images i told you aren't just in one um dream they cross multiple dreams you know this is really this is fascinating i mean so one thing that that comes to mind is there's this phenomenon of, of out-of-body experiences now, which mm-hmm. might be related to what you said about astral travel. I don't know about astral travel, but out-of-body right. experiences I do know about. Right. And these are experiences where people feel they've left their body and they and flying around is, is often reported as well. That's often a key aspect of these experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are two ways to interpret it. Like One is that, oh, my, my soul or myself has actually left my body. My consciousness has left my body and it's, it's gone on a, it's gone moving around. I think that's the wrong way to interpret it. I think you know, it's not evidence that your consciousness can leave your your brain and your body, but I think it's evidence that your sense of where you are in the world is something that the brain is always constructing and putting together. Mm. And the reason I think that, well, firstly, it just makes more sense to me from a, a neuroscience perspective, but also it, out-of-body experiences can be artificially induced in all sorts of ways. You can stimulate the brain and generate an out-of-body experience if you poke the brain in the right place or use VR in, in, in the right way. Um, mm. So these experiences are, yeah, yeah they, they do happen. And again, they can be quite, they're not that uncommon, but people often don't, don't speak about them. And I just think they're very they're interesting window onto how the how the brain works um, in general, and then this idea of seeing things vividly. This this is something you know we should we'd love to talk more about exactly what this is, but but to me it suggests that one of the fascinating things about dreaming, for most people most of the time, whether it's lucid dreaming or not, is 
the reality of the experiences you know things seem real yeah very in a very immediate way um so the brain by itself is clearly able to generate experiences that have this feeling of of, of being real so when you said that yeah you still don't see faces in all their detail but nonetheless there's a sense of kind of reality to what's going on yeah i think that's very interesting because it, it it suggests that they're almost separate so wh when we experience something as being real it doesn't mean that that's because we see things in detail or hear things in detail or smell things in detail you know, the brain just generates this sense of reality and presence kind of independently of that and it does it during dreams and lucid dreaming just to just to finish off now lucid dreaming is um also very interesting it is it is a real phenomenon i think you've experienced it i've experienced it once or twice mm. and it's what happens when we or our brains semi wake up you know they don't completely wake up but most of the time in dreams weird things happen and we don't realize they are weird there's this sort of um naive realism about dreams um and if you put someone in a brain scanner while they're dreaming, one of the things you will see is that activity in the more front parts of the brain goes down. Brain certainly doesn't shut off, but it kind of goes down. The idea is that you know, in waking life, we have the ability to reflect on our experience and sort of think, is this, you know, is this plausible? Is something strange going on? But in dreams, we, we don't have that ability. But in lucid dreaming, we regain a bit of that ability, but without waking ourselves up. And so it's this intermediate state between, between waking and dreaming. I think many people uh, experience a bit of this. You know, when you're falling asleep, yeah. um, sometimes have this thing where you're half dreaming and, and half awake. Yeah. It doesn't usually last very long. It's called either the hypnagogic and the hypnopompic states, beautiful words for the, these, these transitory, liminal um, states of being that mix wakefulness and, and sleep at the borders. And you have the sense of falling and you kind of kicking your leg. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it, exactly. And it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's part of it because in, in, in sleep, in profound sleep, the brain basically paralyzes the body. You know, the brain shuts off its ability to control the body. Otherwise, you know, you'd, you'd act out your dreams. That's what happens when people sleepwalk. Right. And it's in these borderlines where the brain hasn't quite done that yet. So, you know, you'll kick a leg you'll, and some, something will happen. And of course, you kind of wake up when that happens. So... I think all of this beautifully illustrates the richness of consciousness and that's part of the joy and I think the the personal enlightenment that can come from working on these things. It's very, very easy to take consciousness for granted. Like, you know, I wake up, ah, I just see the world yeah. and when I go to sleep, my brain is shut off. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? Our ways of being in the world are incredibly diverse, incredibly complex different from one another, different for ourselves over time. And there are all these different states, lucid dreaming, dreaming, hypnagogia, psychedelics, meditation. And they're all valid and they're all in their own way um, valuable. Yeah. And I think that, that for me is, is very motivating because it, it, it just, yeah, increases my sense of wonder about who we are and why we are the way we are. Yeah, it's just such a beautiful way to go forward as human beings, right? So many more opportunities to understand. And trust me, after that uh, experience of those dreams, like coach is such a disappointment, you know, I can't sit up like this flying. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go is we spoke about this briefly and I, I told you we'll address it later and I want to end up with um, this point is at some way we seem to be on, you know, there's an assault on this idea of reality, truth and experience. And now with the advent of things like ChatGPT and the various big tech companies releasing their own forms of AI, people are worried and there's a real fear that AI is going to be hijacking some form of intelligence and taking over that uh, certain roles from human beings. Is there a threat of similar a similar hijacking or an assault by machines and artificial forms of intelligence conducting this assault on human consciousness? I think we have to be very careful about how we develop and how we interact with and how we regulate AI for exactly this reason. Um, there's this ongoing debate in my field and in philosophy about whether AI will become conscious, you know, whether it will be not only smart, but also start to feel something as well. Mm -hmm. Currently, GPT-4 might say, you know, I feel sad or something like that. But we know that it probably doesn't actually feel anything. Like it's just figuring out what the most, or the algorithm is just predicting the, the most likely word bits that follow some other word bits. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. statistical prediction. Um, but you know, maybe some future GPT would actually feel sad. That's That's a concern. Personally, I don't think that is likely because, firstly, as we started, you know, I think consciousness and intelligence are very different things. So you don't get consciousness for free just as you ramp up how intelligent something is. Yeah. But firstly, I might be wrong about this, and maybe it's possible that you can actually use AI not only to simulate what happens in brains with respect to consciousness, but also give rise to it, generate it. Um, it's an open question. It's like, on the one hand, you have things like computers that play chess. Well, they really do play chess. They don't just simulate playing chess. They, they play chess. Yeah. But then you've got computers that simulate weather systems. And they can do it with enormous power and accuracy. But it never, ever gets wet or windy inside a computer simulating a hurricane. Right? Yeah. It's always yeah. just a simulation. So there's this big question. Yeah? Is consciousness more like chess or more like the weather? Now, I think it's more like the weather that a computer will only ever simulate consciousness it will never generate it but i might be wrong and i think more immediately kind of doesn't matter because we humans we tend to project consciousness into things on the basis of superficial similarity that the use of language something like that so there are already people who think that language models are, are conscious you know there's this engineer for google uh, a couple of years ago who got fired for making statements about that yeah um, and if you couple language models with deepfakes, we'll, we'll live in a world where we'll be interacting with, you know, I could be interacting with a, you know, a version of you, Sophie, that is just not real. You know, it's a language model trained on your personal historical, you know, your, your YouTube channel is trained on all that data um, to generate a fully simulated version of you. And, you know, I'm talking to you now. And of course, I can't help perceiving you as being a conscious mind behind the image on my screen. Yeah. And right now it is. 
But maybe in 10 years that won't be a safe assumption, but I will still project consciousness into you know, future artificial soapy. Yeah. And I think we need to be very careful here because these are frailties of our human psychology that can yeah. be exploited. And the philosopher Daniel Dennett, one of my mentors, this very nice quote, and he, should, he said about AI that we should always remember that we are building tools for us, not colleagues. And when we shouldn't be trying to build alternative humans. We should be figuring out how AI can complement our natural human intelligence. And we shouldn't, should be very mindful and aware of not encouraging the kind of psychological projections and biases that might lead us into problems in the future. And you know, this this just it's a bit of a wild west in the development of AI at the moment. You know, it's not regulated in the same way that the development of a new drug in in pharmaceuticals might be regulated, or or a new airplane might be regulated. But I think we need there is a need for, for greater thought, greater regulation, even bracketing out this question of whether machines really will be conscious of the kind of question that science fiction has dealt with beautifully. Yeah, that's what I think about that. I think my prediction is, you know, the the way we are so easily um, allowing ourselves to be manipulated. I don't think AI will develop consciousness. I think humans will start developing unconsciousness sooner than they are getting, which is going to be numb, plugged in with various buttons, and it just do what you want to do me, uh, do to me, you know. Um, but I hope to have you back in a year or sooner. The way things are developing, the rate, the speed at which maybe we'll have something new in the next six months. So I'd love to have you back on um, uh, to have your thoughts on this underline. But it's been such a lovely experience talking to you about the work you do. And I wish you all the best with the, the research and everything coming up your way and good luck with everything. Thanks very much. Much appreciated. I've really enjoyed the chat too. I look forward to coming back and continuing the conversation. Thank you. And of course, you have a book, which if you'd That's like right. to tell people and where they can get it and what it's about. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes. Uh, so a lot of the things we've been talking about and digging deeper into all of these issues about consciousness and also machine intelligence and consciousness and other animals we didn't talk about, the nature of free will. I have a book called Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, which came out in 2021. And it's available in India. It's available, I think, everywhere. Um, it did really well. I was very gratified. It got on a lot of book of the year lists. and um, Oh, excellent. Congratulations. And it was a bestseller in the UK for the Sunday Times. So I've written it to be accessible to people who are not neuroscientists, not philosophers, but interested in, in the kinds of things we've been talking about. So, yes, I excellent. would encourage anyone listening to this who's found these topics of interest, check out the book. Yeah, we'll link it in the description and make sure that people listening can get a copy and delve deeper into what we've been talking about. Anil, thank you so much. And as I said, it's been a pleasure and look forward to chatting with you again. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.
Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.